Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. everyone, welcome back. Today we're going over an article by Teresa Foti and Anita Bagley, who both have PhDs, and John Davids, who has an MD. So this is titled A Biomechanical Analysis of Gait During Pregnancy, and was published in 2000 in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. So the article begins with some discussion on anatomical changes during pregnancy, specifically due to some of those hormonal changes. Worth noting, they mention the tenfold increase in relaxin levels during pregnancy, which is linked to that increase in the range of motion of the pelvis and the peripheral joints. So as we know, the pathophysiology of some of those musculoskeletal disorders related to pregnancy often are not fully understood, and clinicians of all training, not just PTs, sometimes will just hold off on interventions, assuming that these will get better in the postpartum stages. This is actually called benign neglect, and it's important to identify. There is evidence in the literature suggesting that both objective and subjective outcomes of pregnancy are better when those women remain physically fit. So this would imply that poor physical fitness is a risk factor for a range of musculoskeletal problems associated with pregnancy. These authors produced a study that evaluated the hypothesis that there are gait deviations associated with pregnancy that could contribute to overuse injuries of specific muscle groups and that women who are not physically fit are at the greatest risk. It's often noted that pregnant women exhibit marked gait deviations such as that waddling gait that may contribute to some of the musculoskeletal conditions associated with pregnancy. However, a review of literature revealed limited objective documentation of gait deviations associated with pregnancy. One study found that lower extremity kinetics in the sagittal plane were actually unchanged throughout the whole term of pregnancy. Since the authors could find no fully three-dimensional studies analyzing gait during pregnancy, they investigated it. So let's jump into their materials and their methods. The subjects included 15 healthy women, 9 primigravida, and 6 multigravida were studied in the second half of the last trimester of pregnancy, between 35 and 40 weeks of gestation. What I thought was interesting that they did was all but two were studied again at least one year postpartum to obtain comparative data on non-pregnant women. This was with the assumption that changes that occur during pregnancy disappear by one year postpartum. The remaining two subjects were studied prior to the onset of pregnancy instead of one year postpartum. The mean age of the 15 subjects was 32 years. The range was 25 to 38 years old. The mean height was 5 foot 5.7 inches. The range of that was 5 foot 2 to 5 foot 11.6 inches. And the mean body mass was 139 pounds. So the authors put on some reflective markers on each of the subjects PSIS, ASIS, lateral knee joint, lateral malleoli, and between the distal ends of the second and the third metatarsals. They also put some on the thighs and the calves. Two subjects had them placed on the trunk. Lower extremity kinematic and kinetic data, six to eight strides, was collected with the use of three-dimensional motion analysis system as the subjects performed repeated walks at a self-selected pace across the room. That distance was approximately 12 meters in length. The following angles were analyzed. Their pelvic tilt, their hip flexion and extension, their knee flexion and extension, and ankle dorsiflexion and plantar flexion in the sagittal plane. 
pelvic obliquity and hip abduction and adduction in the coronal plane, and pelvic rotation and foot progression, so that's the longitudinal axis of the foot relative to the line of progression in the transverse plane. They also looked at and calculated internal joint moments, net joint moments, and net joint power. So trunk tilt, obliquity, and rotation were computed with custom software. Trunk tilt was measured as the angle of forward or backward inclination of the trunk relative to the vertical. Trunk obliquity was measured as the angle of sideward inclination of the trunk relative to vertical. And trunk rotation was measured as the angle of rotation of the upper trunk relative to the line of progression. The normalized dynamic base of support width was calculated as the mean width between the ankle joint centers during double support. The base of support width was normalized to pelvic width in an attempt to account for any increases in the distance between the centers of the hip joints during pregnancy. So I thought that was really important that they did that. Pelvic width rather than the actual distance between the hip joint centers was measured because pelvic width could be directly measured. Okay, so we're already on to the results. For time and distance parameters, there was no significant differences found in walking velocity. Changes that were small, and we're talking like 1-2% to of the gait cycle small, but significant were found in single and double support times. For the kinematic and kinetic data they acquired, they did have some findings. So during pregnancy, significant increase in maximum anterior pelvic tilt, maximum hip flexion, and stance phase hip adduction during walking were found. Compared with a condition one year postpartum, maximum anterior pelvic tilt during pregnancy increased a mean of four degrees overall. It increased by five degrees or more for nine subjects, was similar for five subjects, and decreased by more than five degrees for only one subject. Trunk tilt, obliquity, and rotation angles throughout the gait cycle during pregnancy were similar to those measured one year postpartum in those two subjects they continued to monitor. After normalization for body weight, no significant differences were found for any of the kinetic parameters with two exceptions. The first exception being normalized hip abduction moment during stance, first peak only, was still significantly increased during pregnancy, and the second being normalized maximum ankle plantar flexion moments were actually significantly decreased during pregnancy. If you want to go crazy with p-values, this is the article to do so, by the way. There's a lot of breakdown regarding each of the motion of the angles. For simplicity's sake, I'm just going to try to present what they noted to be significant. Significant increases in both pelvic width and mean ankle separation width during double support were found during pregnancy. However, the ratio of base of support width to pelvic width remained constant. So while it increased, it increased to an appropriate scale. So the authors go into a discussion piece that I wanted to dive into a little bit here too. Big picture, the results of this study indicate that kinematically, gait during pregnancy is remarkably unchanged. But little picture, small deviations in pelvic tilt, hip flexion, extension, and adduction were observed during pregnancy. Velocity, stride length, and cadence during the third trimester of pregnancy were similar to those measured one year postpartum. So that so-called waddling gait, consisting of increases in the normalized dynamic base of support, the external foot progression angle, pelvic obliquity, and pelvic rotation, was not so much documented during pregnancy. So, big picture, these authors did not find any waddlers. Although an overall significant increase in anterior tilt of the pelvis during pregnancy was found, it isn't possible to really draw general conclusions from the kinematic data about how back posture during gait is altered during pregnancy. 
So remember too that these changes in the pelvic tilt varied among pregnant patients, suggesting that not all women have the same postural alterations. The authors then go on to say additional studies incorporating improved dynamic analysis of trunk and pelvic motion in a greater number of pregnancy subjects are necessary in order to identify the most common primary deviations and compensatory trunk alignment strategies used by pregnant women. Just remember that they did have a pretty small N for their subjects. There were several alterations in kinetic parameters during pregnancy that appear to reflect on compensations utilized to maintain normal gait despite substantial increases in body mass and an anterior shift in the center of gravity. These changes in kinetic parameters suggest an increased use of hip abductor, hip extensor, and ankle plantar flexor muscle groups. Increased hip abductor power during pregnancy is consistent with an increased use of hip abductor muscles in order to maintain normal gait with increased body mass. Significant increases in double support time and decreases in single support time during pregnancy may be fine-tuning compensations to minimize the time spent on single limb support when this increased muscular effort is required to support an increased body mass with only one limb. The observed magnitude and timing changes in hip kinetic patterns in the sagittal plane with pregnancy are consistent with increased body mass and a shift toward a more anterior center of mass. They did find that internal hip extension moment during early stance is potentially increased during pregnancy by both an increased body mass and an anterior shift in the center of mass position. But after normalization of maximum hip extension moment and maximum hip power generation in the sagittal plane compared to body mass, there wasn't a significant difference between pregnancy and one year postpartum. So from this, the authors deducted that changes in hip extension moment and power are mainly due to the effect of body mass rather than to that shift in the position of center of mass. Remember that the maximum ankle power absorption is a measure of the amount of eccentric muscle work being done by those ankle plantar flexors to control the rotation of the tibia over the foot as the ankle dorsiflexes during stance. So an increased maximum ankle power absorption and maximum ankle plantar flexion moment during gait are both consistent with an increased use of the ankle plantar flexor muscle groups during an increased weight during pregnancy. Basically, the ankles are working harder for the increased weight during pregnancy. When they're normalized for body weight though, the authors noted similar or minimally reduced power absorption and moments during pregnancy compared to one year postpartum. So we can assume that these levels were elevated due to body weight changes like we mentioned. They also deduced that calf cramps during pregnancy might be related to the increased functional demand placed on those ankle plantar flexors, but we shouldn't forget about those hormonal and the metabolic factors too. The authors note that we also have to consider for the potential for error, including potential imprecise placements of those markers. So big take-home points from this Waddle study include a couple of things. Despite major anatomical changes associated with pregnancy, the kinematics of gait during pregnancy were found to be remarkably unchanged in this article. The data suggests an increased use of hip extensor, hip abductor, and ankle plantar flexor muscles to compensate for increases in body mass and changes in body mass distribution during pregnancy to help keep speed, stride length, cadence, and joint ankles relatively unchanged. Consider the kinematic changes when patients are coming to you for musculoskeletal overuse injuries, as those compensations could be contributing. 
The results of this study support the clinician's recommendation of appropriate exercise and conditioning programs during pregnancy in order to avoid overuse injuries to specific muscle groups. All right, so that's it for this article. Next up in pregnancy and postpartum is an article by Gukki on pelvic girdle pain and lumbar pain related to postpartum depression symptoms, which I think is a great consideration for a study. So as always, thank you for listening. I hope to see you all listening at our next article. Bye, everyone.